I invite you to open in the Word to Romans chapter 14. There is a, a phrase found in the text that we're going to look at today that just uh, rocks me because I know it's true of me. Um, that, or it should be true of me, but it's not. The phrase is this, none of us lives to himself. None of us lives to himself, as in we should live for another. None of us lives to himself. Well, that's hard, because I know that's not true of me. I live for myself every day, every moment. Uh, Let me read the text for us this morning. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to begin at verse 1 and read through verse 9. Here's God's word. Romans 14, 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lives again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. May God give us grace to understand his word this morning. I want to look specifically this morning at verses 7, 8, and 9. 7, 8, and 9. It begins with that phrase, For none of us lives to himself. It's interesting because if you take that verse, even in this context, and you read it quickly, you think, you may think that that means, okay, this is going to be uh, harping home on me about the sense of community because Romans 14 is about, well, how do you get along with fellow Christians you disagree with? And so you might think, well, none of us lives to himself. That's probably trying to indict me and say that I need to live for other Christians. Uh, and, And we could see that if we read it quickly. But ultimately, it is about a relationship but it's not a relationship with the other people around us. These three verses is about our relationship, firstly, to the Lord. It's our relationship to the Lord, how you relate to him. The amazing thing is it speaks about you and God, not you and others. Even though the context of Romans 14 is all about how you interact with others that you may vastly disagree with, this verse, these three verses, kind of gives a real heart and a real foundation to why you relate to other people the way you do. We, we've seen that so far as well, um, you know, in, in Romans 14, there's this a difference of opinion. And so people can have difference of opinion and still get along, still be in relationship together. And here, the heart of it is, well, who do you belong to? The Lord. And who do they belong to? Well, the Lord. And, and what is the goal and the end goal of your life? Is Here it says, the Lord. 
And so the placement of this text is really interesting because it's about us and our relationship and how we relate to the Lord, but it impacts the way we walk with the church. Our relationship is about us and the Lord, but it impacts our relationship with the church. And you see, um, verse 7 is interesting. So none of us lives to himself. When we live life in this world, we are living not for ourselves. That should be the goal. If you're anything like me, all you do is live for yourself. And if it is not by the grace of God and any strength that he gives you, and even in a moment, you're living for yourself. That's what we do. We are so selfish. We are, we are self-willed. Well, I'm going to do what I want, right? And so I make goals in my life, and I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And how many people do you interact with where just the, even the idea of Christianity or having a faith in a God is, is a hard concept because they say, well, no, I'm in charge, right? I'm in charge. I live for myself. And so you can't tell me, I can't have somebody barking orders at me telling me how to live my life. It's my life. I can live how I want. You hear that and you hear that echo in your own heart, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to live how I want to live. It's my life. No one can tell me how to live any differently. That's the natural inclination of your heart and mind. We want to live according to what pleases us. But here's the, the thing is, what pleases us is warped. Like it's wrong. Our heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, right? If you know it, it's a verse you should memorize. The heart is uh, desperately wicked. And it's deceitful. It lies to us. And so if we say, well, I'm just going to follow my heart. Dangerous. Your heart lies to you. It tells you that you want all these things and all these things are going to satisfy you when ultimately they don't. Your heart tells you that relationship in this world satisfies. Well, it doesn't. Your, your spouse or your friends let you down. So your heart lied to you. Don't believe it again. Or your heart tells you, well, if you're just rich, then you won't have to worry, right? Well, that's a lie. Some of the richest people in the world commit suicide every year. Why? Their life is full of worry and emptiness. And so the heart just lies to us all the time. And so we, trying to live for ourselves, is the most dangerous thing we could ever do. The, the most um, safe thing that we can do, not even safe, life is not about safety, but in terms of our growth and, and goodness for us, is to live under another. Is to live in submission. Firstly, submission to Christ. And then from there, God has other ordained Things in our life where we're to submit to. We don't live to ourselves. We live in the structure that God has made us. He has made us. And so we live to him. And then he puts us in relationship to, we should live under our government as long as they are not tyrannical and, and causing us to disobey God. We should live under them. And then we should live in, in our household, in our family, for one another, not for ourselves. This phrase is so difficult to swallow. None of us lives to himself. It's like he's assuming that you don't live to yourself, or you at least shouldn't live to yourself. And I find it's not true of my heart. None of us lives to himself. But then, the second part of that phrase in verse 7 is interesting. <clears throat> None of us dies to himself. Your life lived from now until whenever the moment you breathe your last, that should not be for yourself. It should be for another. It should be for the Lord. And secondly, we should also die. Not for ourselves, but to the Lord. So living lives to the Lord, because verse 8 um, clarifies that, right? So none of us lives to himself. Well, verse 8 says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And what does that even mean, to live to the Lord? And, and even what does it mean to live? 
in this context? Does it just mean to have life like every other human has life? Or does it mean to live? If, if you live, if you're alive, if you have been born again, you've been given a fresh start by Jesus, if you're living, you're going to live to the Lord. It's almost like none of us lives to himself. Because if we're living, if we're truly living, we're going to live to the Lord. We're going to live for his glory. We're going to live to do what pleases him. That's how we kind of gauge how we're supposed to live in this world. It's not about what my heart desires and what I think feels right. Instead, what is the gauge to how I live? Not to myself. I'm to live to the Lord. That is to please him, to bring him glory, to bring him honor. That's what it is to live to the Lord. But then also, none of us dies to himself. If you die to yourself, you are. Even in thinking of your end of your life, you're selfish. Think about what, what's, what's about you. And so there's a, a growing trend, and it's going to perpetuate as our government passes this bill, of taking your own life. Right? When someone takes their own life uh, through a weapon, it's tragic, and everyone knows it's tragic. But yet, there's this trend of, well, if you go to a doctor, it's not tragic, and it's dignified. You, you, know, you have dignity in dying when you choose to die yourself through doctor's help. But if you pull the trigger... There's no dignity in that. So it's a really warped view on the end, but it, either way, it's selfish. It's selfish either way. They're, that's a person who's dying to themselves. They want to do what they want for them. They don't think about others. They don't think about God's plan for their life, uh, that he determines when we live and when we die. They don't think about their family or the ripple effect. They don't think about what that says to other people about the value of life. Like if they say, well, I get to pull the trigger because I have cancer, what you're saying is everyone else who has cancer should pull the trigger. Or you should pull the trigger because you got a disability. Well, then everyone else who has a disability should pull the trigger, according to your mind. And the, the sad and scary thing about our government and this new bill they're passing is it opens it up to not just, it used to be you could go to a doctor and if you were um, palliative, if you were dying in the next six months, they would help you to expedite that death. Um, but now they've opened it right up. You don't need to even have a diagnosis. You can say you're just struggling with mental health, and they will, the same day, a doctor will help you to die. Without two witnesses, without going back, without reflection, same day, they'll help you die. How many people in this world have, have thought suicidal thoughts or thought, I want to die in a moment of maybe pain and agony, self-focus for sure, but then have got two days later and said, I'm like, man, Wednesday was rough, but I'm glad I didn't do it on Wednesday. Well, now our government's saying, no, here's the trigger. Here's the trigger. It's terrifying because it, it just perpetuates people dying to themselves with only focus on them and what it says about them and, and to their own heart because they're believing their heart. This is going to satisfy you. You're going to feel good. You're dying with dignity. It's not. It's not. This is a person who dies to themselves is a person who dies truly in agony, in real agony, because they are dying in self-focus. That's not what we live for. It says we live not for ourselves, and we die not for ourselves. And then verse 9 clarifies. Uh, sorry, verse 8 clarifies. Uh, so then uh, we die to the Lord. So just like how we live to the Lord, we live for his glory, we live by what pleases him, following his leadership and what he determines is right and good in our life because he's perfect and we're not. My heart's screwed up every other day, so why would I trust that? I'll trust God who is perfect always in my life and in my death. 
I'm going to trust him in my death. I'm going to trust him, maybe through a painful valley, maybe a long-suffering valley, but I'm going to trust him. I know he's trustworthy and true. I die to the Lord and for his pleasure and his glory. It might please him that I suffer for a while. And that seems kind of strange. But when you realize what suffering does to you, when you read uh, Romans chapter, uh, which one is it? Six or, yeah, Romans chapter six um, and five. About our suffering. And, oh man, I'm not sure actually now that I think about that. But the idea of suffering produces ultimately hope, right? Suffering produces endurance and, and patience. And those things, as you actually learn to wait and as you actually endure, it actually produces hope. And so sometimes God allows this suffering, and sometimes at the end of our life, to produce more hope. And so it is a good gift of God sometimes to allow us to suffer. Whenever we suffer, it is a gift of God. God is not out of control. And so we live to the Lord, entrusting our whole lives to him, following him in everything, and then we die to the Lord, trusting our death to him as well. Look at verse 8. So it says, If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That last phrase, we are the Lord's, is what makes it precious and sweet. It is a term of ownership in one sense, where a father can say, you are my daughter, you are my son. We are the Lord's. We belong to him. We belong to his family so that we know when we trust him with our lives and with our deaths, with everything, we know that we are his. We're his. We are the Lord's. And and that, in this context, really points to his lordship. His lordship, his rule and reign over us and over our life and over the situations and circumstances we are walking through at this moment. We are the Lord's. And when you understand who you belong to, and really, what that means for your life and, and the direction of your life, it is cause for celebration. It's cause for rest. Right? Jesus himself said, are you heavy laden? Are you burdened? Well, come to me and you'll find rest. We're the Lord's. He'll take the yoke upon himself. He'll give us a yoke of his own. There is still yoke. There is still labor. There is still difficulty. But it's his. It's his. We are the Lord's. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living, that he might be Lord. What does it mean to be Lord? The ruler, the king of your heart, the leader of your life, the Lord. If you come under the Lord, you follow him. You pledge allegiance to him. And I love that word. One of my professors in Bible college used it often about his relationship with God, talking about his heart uh, didn't have the right allegiance to God like it should. I thought, that is a really valuable term um, because it, it gets the idea really well. Uh, I, am, uh, I have my allegiance to God and to Christ alone. That he, might, he died and he lived. Uh, he resurrected so that he might be Lord. Because that's the amazing thing. So number one, he died so that he might be Lord. He died so that he could uh, rule over your sin. And he could rule over all the uh, agony that that would cause you. He could rule over what your eternity looks like. He died so that he could be Lord, so that when you confess him as Lord, Romans 10, verse 9, 
It says, um, because if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You confess that he is Lord. You don't just confess that Jesus is, that he's, that he's real, check. You don't just confess that Jesus is God, check. You don't even just confess that he died on the cross for your sins. You confess that he is Lord, that he rules your life, that he rules your decision making. He rules your moral compass. He rules your life. He is Lord. Do, do you follow him? Imagine a person who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. I'm a Christian. I believe, I believe in Jesus and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven, but I don't follow the Lord. He's not my Lord. That, that doesn't add up. But some people say that. Some people say, well, there are people who are going to heaven and um, they haven't really come to Jesus. They don't really live for Jesus. They're just, they're just getting to heaven. And that makes absolutely no sense. Because he died for this. That he might be Lord, and we confess him as Lord, leader, guide of our life. And he lives again, so that we're not just following some dead statue. He lives again. He was resurrected for, according to Romans 1, for our justification, to prove what he has accomplished for us. It's not just like, well, we think that he was God, or we think that he actually uh, did what he said he could do, that is, raise from the dead, that is, come back, that is, vindicate us before God, redeem us before God. He, he didn't just say that, but he did it, and he proved it by raising from the dead. He lives again, and so we serve a Lord who's not just a statue, not just an idea, not just a character from a book 2,000 years ago. We serve a living God, a living Lord, one who we literally follow his leadership every day. He has my allegiance because he is alive. If he was dead, it would be really hard to give him my allegiance and to follow him. But I know he's alive. He's alive. He, he died for this and it says he lived for this, that he might be Lord, both of the, of the dead, which is really interesting, and of the living. He's the Lord of the dead. Those who have already died, he's the Lord of them, right? One day every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. He's the Lord of them already in this moment and will be forever. The dead. He's the Lord of the dead and of the living. He died and he lived again for this. And so then we must think about what does it mean to live under the Lordship of Christ? Um, it is Christ and our subjection to his will. That's what it means. That will regulate our hearts, our moral compass, and every aspect of life. To live under Christ. That's what it means to live under this lordship. You, you may not be aware of a controversy in recent church history, late 1980s. Um, it relates to this very point. And J.I. Packer, writing in 1991, says the following about it. He says, in 1991, he says this. If 10 years ago you had told me that I would live to see uh, evangelicals, some with doctorate degrees and seminary teaching records, arguing for the reality of an eternal salvation, divinely guaranteed, that doesn't have repentance, that doesn't have discipleship, that requires no behavioral change, and there is no practical acknowledgement as Christ is Lord, that there is no pers perseverance in the faith. He says, I would have told you you're out of your mind, but now this thing has happened. In the late 1980s, there was two very popular books that came out. 
that argued against the lordship of Christ as a means, not a means of your salvation, but a proof of your salvation. They said, Christ doesn't need to be your Lord. He'll save you, but he doesn't need to be your Lord. He doesn't need, as, as Packer said, they don't require repentance. They don't require discipleship, growing in Jesus. They don't require behavioral change. Jesus doesn't need to be your Lord, and you don't need to persevere in the faith, but you can still be a Christian. That was a real trend in the late 1980s. And John MacArthur came out at, at head on, and he fought that thing for years. Um, and he took a real beating for it. Because he says, there's no way you can tell me that you are a Christian if Christ is not your Lord. Um, and especially Romans 10 verse 9, like I just said. You, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's, it's no plainer than that. But what does that actually mean? It means living under him, following him, living for him. You're not a Christian if you don't fall under the Lordship of Christ. Because he rules over all things. And when you recognize him as God, you recognize him as your Lord as your ruler. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So if you recognize who he is as the Lord, you're under, under his kingdom and, and under his rule and his reign. He gives, uh, Jesus has been given dominion. We read in Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 23. Uh, God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. In the heavenly places, far above the rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of all who fills all in all. He's the head. He's the ruler. And you read that when you get the imagery of the, the body of Christ in the Bible, right? You have different parts. They have different gifts. They look differently. They're very unique. But ultimately, the head is Christ. He's the one who rules and tells the arm what to do. And, and the arm and the hand don't just do their own thing and try to be not a part of the body anymore. We know that that's a disordered body, right? That, that's not right. When we see that, we stroke patients, Right? Their body's not doing what their brain says it should be doing. It's disordered. It's not how it should be. And so, same thing in the church. If you think you have people who just can be lone rangers, or off doing their own thing, not under the lordship, the headship of Christ, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. But instead, we realize he has been given dominion, so we come under his rule and reign, knowing that it is good for us. Uh, Vern uh, says, uh, Poithras says this, uh, We are to serve Christ all the time, in all of life, with all our heart. That's what it means to come under the lordship of Christ. Serve Christ all the time, in all of life, with all our heart. And he says some points under that. He says, this means Christ is enthroned and deserves our obedience. Well, and that makes sense, right? If, if Christ is your king and your ruler, and you know that he reigns perfectly, and for your good, and for his glory, well then, he deserves our obedience. He's a good and right king, and so he deserves our obedience. Second point he says under that is, Christ is altogether lovely and completely worthy of our service. So not just obedience, but our servants. Our heart that wants to serve him and his, uh, his plan in the world. The third thing is, God commands us to serve him. We're told to serve Christ. The fourth thing he says is, we were created and designed and destined for this service. 
And you see that even, right? Think about the Genesis account of our creation. We were created in the image of God to reflect Him. And as we were meant to reflect Him, people and creatures were even were supposed to look at us and say, look how beautiful God is. That's what we were designed to do. We were designed to reflect Him in how we loved, in how we served, and how we cared for the earth, and how we cared for other people. We were designed to reflect and really be a good image bearer of who God is, what He's kind of like. We screwed it up. Adam and Eve screwed it up, and we've been screwing it up ever since. And so we were designed for it. We were designed to live for Him and to show the world how great... Because that's the thing. The reason we were designed for that is because only God satisfies. You want to talk about a heart that lies to you, it tells you everything else satisfies you? Well, it's a lie. Only God satisfies. And the only way you're going to get to know God is if you know Him as beautiful and glorious. And we were designed to reflect that, to just emanate it, to radiate it to all people that we could come into contact with others and say, God is so beautiful. God is so glorious. I want to be satisfied in God, not in another person, not in creation, not in stuff. That's what happened in the fall. We started falling for everything else. As Romans chapter 1 says, right? We started worshiping created things rather than the creator. That's broken. But we were designed originally so that we could reflect his glory and people would look at us and say, oh, I want more of God. And that's where when you find a Christian relationship, it's beautiful when you can say, this person makes me want more of God. That's the kind of people you want to be around. That's the kind of people you've got to marry. That's the kind of people you've got to surround yourself with as friends and as church families. These people make me want to be more like God. They make me want to be more satisfied in Jesus alone. And they make me see how dissatisfying this world is. That's the kind of people you want to be around. We were created for this. So then we, in our redeemed state, in our, in our now with new desires, we, we aim for that. We don't get it perfectly because we still live for ourselves. But we aim for that. And then if I, he says another point, he says, we find the deepest satisfaction and joy in life only in this service. Because if you know that's what satisfies you, you know that's gonna, what satisfies the next person. And so you're, you're full of joy serving them in that way and serving God in that way. What they need is to realize God satisfies. So I take great joy in showing them how God satisfies in my own life and in their life. So we serve our Lord. That's what it looks like. You serve with joy, allowing other peoples to enjoy him. And the last thing he says, the, the Holy Spirit empowers us for this service. It's not something that you're doing in your own effort, with your own strength, because, guess what? You live for yourself. And so the only way you're ever going to do that, you're ever going to serve Christ and serve other people, is by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God in you, at work in you, producing fruit and love in you for people that are unlovely, and, and, and making you sacrifice time that you really wanted to hold on to, Sacrifice money that you really like in your bank account. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It says, no, they need it. And, and they need to be satisfied in Jesus. So give, give, give of yourself for them and for his glory. That's what it means to live under the Lordship of Christ. Is to be concerned about his glory in all the worlds. And he gave that command to his disciples, right? Matthew 28. As he's sending them out, he gives them the command. Go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world. And in that same very passage, he talks about... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go. Go, and I will be with you always. So he's telling us, I'm the ruler. I'm the reigner. I'm in charge. I'm the king who cares for his people, and I want you to go and make people more satisfied. But you're not doing it on your own. I'm with you always until the end of the age. He's not only telling us where to go and how to do it, but he enables us to do it. Serving Christ makes a profound difference in everyday life. 
everyday life. It's not just when, you know, you proclaim Christ as Lord when you, you know, said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Like, I need my life to change. And say, Jesus is Lord. Like, I want him to be the Lord of my life. It's not just a one-time thing. It's something that we need to confess every day. Like, I need you to rule my life today because if I rule it, it's a mess. <laughs> if I'm ruling this life, it's a mess and it's for myself only. And if I'm thinking about my death, it's for me only. God, I need you to rule and I need you to reign. Coming under the Lordship of Christ is something we do every day. We confess him as Lord every day. But it's, it's in every area of life, too. Is he the Lord? Is he the ruler of your time? Is he the Lord? Is he the ruler of your relationships? Is he the Lord and ruler of your money? Is he the Lord and ruler of how you think about politics and, and how you work, even, your worth ethic? Is he the Lord of that? Do you even consider, like, where is God's leadership in my life in this area? Am I following his leadership? Am I doing what pleases him or am I living to myself? And I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to, you know, save up. Or I'm just trying to get through a day of work. Or are you thinking, how is he ruling my work life? How is he ruling our finances? Is he the Lord in every area of life? Christian believers uh, differ radically from unbelievers in the inclination of our hearts. My inclination is I want to follow him. I want to serve him. Doesn't mean I do it well and perfectly. But the inclination is it's new. It's fresh. Verses here say, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. It's amazing, because now when you see it with those eyes, and you and the Lord, your relationship with the Lord and his lordship, and now we zoom back out and say, this is in Romans 14. This is in a whole chapter, which is all about how you relate to other believers and other Christians. This impacts my relationship to the church. This impacts my relationship to the people who also believe in the death and the resurrection. Who also are trying, by God's power, to submit themselves to the best of their ability to God and to living for him. And they're not getting it right either. But they're just like me. As this is reminding me that none of us should live for themselves, but I do. Just like the person over there that I'm just really tempted to judge in the way they're rolling this thing out, right? So this context is very important. Why it's here is very important. These are the people surrounding you who also want to live for the glory of God. They want to live to the Lord. They want to die to the Lord. They have this ultimate goal in life and in death. Death is not just to escape, but it's a pursuit of a redeemer. This is the church. The church is people who want to live for the Lord and die for the Lord. And when I think about this between me and God and just really my struggle with this every day, coming under his lordship, really giving over every area of my life to his rule and reign, then I have to also be very gracious with those who I walk shoulder to shoulder with and say, they're going through the same struggle I am. They're not perfectly living for the Lord, and they're, they're sometimes living for themselves. But God's been gracious to me. Why can I not be gracious to them in how they even think about different opinions? That's what 14, Roman 14 is about, right? Like, they have different opinions than I do. But they're convicted of those things, and their conviction is so that they may live to the Lord. And so what am I supposed to do but encourage them? Even though I vastly disagree with them, I'm going to encourage them in the Lord. Say, I'm, I'm glad you're trying to pursue Christ. And I'm going to do whatever I can to help you to pursue Christ. Even though you believe differently than me about X, Y, or Z, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm walking with you. Let's pursue Christ together. 
when Christ is your Lord, you realize that you're in a kingdom and you're not, you're not alone. You walk side by side with people from different walks of life. They're at different points in the journey. They have different understandings. They have different approaches. But you're under the lordship of Christ together. So you celebrate with joy side by side with those others. I love what Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, you know, uh, whether I come to you or I'm absent, I, I want to hear of you that you are walking side by side in the faith of the gospel. You're walking side by side in the faith of the gospel. It doesn't matter if you agree on whether women should wear skirts in church or not. Are you walking side by side on the faith for the gospel? Is that your life? Are you together trying to say, we are the Lord's? We're not, we're not living for ourselves, we're living for the Lord. And it's looking differently between me and them, but we're living for the Lord together. So we entrust ourselves to Christ, and we entrust them to Christ too. That's how we relate to other Christians. So none of us lives to himself. First relationship is God and Christ. But then we also don't live to ourselves in those who we're surrounded with. We live to the Lord, and that impacts our relationships. And we also die to the Lord, and that impacts our relationships. We don't think about ourselves in our death. Think about how I might impact others for Christ. How I might um, cry out to God, even when I suffer, even if and when I die. I don't know if you know uh, or have read The Pilgrim's Progress, but his death is really interesting in, in that book. So Christian is walking with a friend, and they're both going through death at the same time. And Christian, he's getting really discouraged in death. He's looking back and saying, no, it's not for me. Those, those men waiting at the shoreline, they're not for me. No, there's no way. I don't have enough strength to stand. There's no way I'm going to make it to heaven. And his friend pulls him up out of the water and says, no, they're waiting for you and for me. Not because of what you have done, but because of Christ. Walking side by side, we need that in life and in death. And it's amazing because in the story, his friend was also in death. And so he just encouraged him in the Lord. He wasn't looking to himself. And, and as it says, you know, we look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We live to the Lord, and that impacts the way we live for others. And we do it all for his glory. Let's pray. Well, God, you teach us so much. Um, even as we firstly relate to you and how we mess that up every day, and yet you are gracious towards us and kind towards us that Christ came and, and lived for us and died for us, and he lives again for us as well, interceding for us, praying for us, and strengthening us. And so, God, we want to live for you. We want to die for you too. We need your help. And we need your help to come under your lordship, your rule, and your reign so that when we live for you, we might also intrinsically live for others. We might not be focused on ourselves, but we might be thinking about how you um, and salvation in you would reach the world and maybe through us. So God, help us to submit to your lordship. Our hearts uh, just want to worship idols all day long. They're idol factories. We want to just worship the created things rather than the creator. And so God, right now we confess we have a great need of you when it comes to submitting to you. We are rebellious at the very core. So help us. Help us to not rebel. Help us to not push against what is good for us. Help us to submit in all that we do as you, as our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.